You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 340th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Thursday, July 2nd, 1863, dawned warm and humid at Gettysburg. Morning mists covered the fields and thick clouds filled the sky, while heavy dew or light misting rain dampened the tens of thousands of men sleeping in the fields outside the town, men who would shortly awake to the sounds of drums and bugles. The temperature was a muggy 74 degrees at 7 a.m. with a light breeze from the south. It was going to be a hot day. As the skies continued to lighten, Major General George Gordon Meade was almost certainly a bit worried. Only a portion of his army had arrived and taken up positions by then, and Meade had no idea whether his ever-aggressive counterpart across the way, Robert E. Lee, was planning an early morning assault. But with each passing hour, as more and more of his troops came up and took up their assigned positions, and as the Confederate army remained quiet, Meade's anxiety would have lessened. By mid-morning, George Meade could breathe a sigh of relief, as most of his army was on the field. The 12th Corps and portions of the 1st took up positions on Culp's Hill on the right of the Federal line, while the 11th Corps maintained its position on Cemetery Hill, the keystone of the entire Union position. Hancock's 2nd Corps formed to the left of the 11th, taking up a line of defense that ran southward along Cemetery Ridge. To the left of Hancock went the soldiers of the 3rd Corps, commanded by Dan Sickles, who had been instructed to extend his line south to Little Round Top, a rocky eminence that would anchor the left end of the Federal position. John Buford's Union cavalrymen patrolled the area around Sherfee's Peach Orchard, some three-quarters of a mile in front of Sickles' position where they also provided flank support. George Sykes' 5th Corps, reaching the field about 10 a.m., took up position behind the lines, where it was held in reserve. The only force not yet on the field that morning was the big 6th Corps, commanded by John Sedgwick. Having received orders late on July 1st to make their way to Gettysburg as quickly as possible, Sedgwick's men set out from Manchester, Maryland, on what would be one of the epic forced marches of the Civil War, 
covering more than 30 miles during 19 hours of almost continuous marching, and finally arriving at Gettysburg late on the afternoon of July 2nd. Meanwhile, at the home of the widow Mary Thompson, which stood just north of the Chambersburg Pike on Seminary Ridge at the west end of town, Robert E. Lee had awoken shortly before dawn that Thursday morning. Interestingly, there's been recent controversy about whether the Thompson House actually served as Lee's headquarters. Part of his headquarters did consist of tents pitched directly across the road, but there's compelling evidence that Lee spent time in the home to dine, rest, and meet with his commanders. Just a footnote, but the Thompson House was privately owned until early 2015 when the Civil War Trust acquired the property in a big win for battlefield preservation. After its acquisition of the small stone house and the previously unpreserved acreage around it, the Trust undertook a successful effort to rehabilitate the home and to restore the landscape to reflect its appearance on July 1, 1863. When Robert E. Lee awoke on the morning of July 2nd, he was determined to attack those people across the way, and the sooner the better, he would have thought, before the Federal Army had time to fully concentrate. But before he could pitch into the enemy, indeed before he could actually develop a plan of attack for the day ahead, Lee had to first find out exactly what kind of position his opponent had taken up. Here again, Lee would regret the absence of Jeb Stuart, his most trusted and reliable intelligence gatherer. Since Stuart wouldn't arrive until later in the day on the 2nd, Lee was forced that morning to rely on several staff and other officers to perform reconnaissance duty. They set out that morning following Lee's instructions to both survey the ground and fix the locations of the federal formations. Lee knew that the enemy right was well positioned on the high ground southeast of town, on Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. So his main area of interest was on the Union left. To find out exactly where that was, Lee sent out one of his engineers, Captain Samuel Johnston, who, along with Major James Clark of Longstreet's staff, set out just after 4 a.m., riding south in an effort to locate the Union left. Early on the morning of July 2nd, Robert E. Lee left his headquarters at the Widow Thompson's and made his way to a point near the Lutheran Seminary where he could get a better view of the federal positions on the other side of town. There he met up with James Longstreet. Lee was eager to renew the battle of the previous day, but Longstreet, after greeting Lee, objected again to the idea of fighting it out with the Yankees at Gettysburg. Longstreet brought up the same objections he had raised the evening before and offered as a counterproposal that vague plan for disengaging here, sidestepping the army to the right, moving between the Army of the Potomac and Washington, where the Confederates could take up a strong position where Meade would have to attack them. It was the sort of plan that sounds good until someone actually starts to consider the practical details involved in implementing it. 
First and foremost, it was based on the assumption that Meade would sit still while the Army of Northern Virginia worked its way around him to the south to gain an advantage over him. Lee certainly knew this was a foolish assumption and would have realized that, for that reason, as well as others, it was highly unlikely Longstreet's plan would actually work and produce the results he envisioned. Just as he had done the day before, Lee again dismissed Longstreet's idea of sidestepping a battle here, and the Confederate commander instead continued to think about the best way of attacking the enemy there at Gettysburg. A number of other rebel officers soon arrived, including John B. Hood, a hard-fighting Kentuckian who commanded one of Longstreet's divisions. To Hood, Lee appeared anxious that morning as he paced back and forth, stopping every now and then to gaze through his binoculars. Hood noted that Lee, quote, seemed full of hope, yet at times buried in deep thought. That morning, while Lee was awaiting Johnston's scouting report, several foreign military observers gathered there at the spot near the old dorm building on Seminary Ridge to, well, observe the proceedings. Two of them, including British Colonel Arthur Fremantle, climbed up into a big oak tree to gain a better vantage point. Fremantle later wrote of how, quote, just below us were seated Generals Lee, Hill, Longstreet, and Hood in consultation, the latter two assisting their deliberations by the truly American custom of whittling sticks. Hood later remembered how Lee, at one point during their deliberations, said to him, quote, The enemy is here, and if we do not whip him, he will whip us. Perhaps Lee's words were spoken as much to Longstreet as to Hood, for it seems that on some level Lee was deeply troubled by his first experience with uncooperative subordinates. Although this was his sixth campaign in his one year of command of the Army of Northern Virginia, it was the first time his decisions had been questioned or challenged by his lieutenants. Dick Yule and his generals had been uniformly negative toward Lee's idea of moving the Second Corps after the fighting was over on July 1st. And now Longstreet had not once, but twice, sought a major change in Lee's scheme for confronting the enemy, to the point of wishing to march away from Gettysburg and switch from the offensive to the defensive. To be sure, previous battles hadn't always gone as they were planned, battles seldom do, but never before had Lee's battlefield planning or his decisions been questioned or challenged to this degree. But Robert E. Lee's decision to attack on July 2nd was more than a desire to assert his authority over obstinate or uncooperative subordinates. Because beyond anything else, Lee was committed to attacking the enemy at Gettysburg on July 2nd because he was determined to keep the initiative. Throughout his invasion of Pennsylvania, Lee had considered it essential to make the Federals march to his drum. As the aggressor, far from his own base, and with a tenuous, at best, line of communication and supply back south, Lee knew his margin for error was slim, and the best way to reduce that margin for error even further was to maintain the initiative, 
to always keep the Federals on their heels. And so keeping the initiative was critical. Stewart's absence had nearly upset all of that, though. On the first day of July, Confederate infantry had advanced to Gettysburg on a scouting mission, which was actually the cavalry's job. The rebel foot soldiers had stumbled into an engagement that Harry Heath was unwilling or unable to back out of. Only Dick Yule's fortuitous arrival on the field had turned the engagement into a real battle, and the battle into a Confederate victory on July 1st, with the smashing of two Federal Corps. At the end of the day, the initiative remained in Lee's hands, but in order to hold on to it, he believed he had to press the attack as soon as possible on July 2nd. By all indications, Lee did wish to attack as soon as possible on July 2nd, which makes sense since he knew time was a critical factor. Prisoners who were captured on the 1st made it clear that the Federals who fought at Gettysburg that day were from Buford's Cavalry Division and from the 1st and 11th Corps. Then the dispatch captured by Allegheny Johnson's men on the evening of July 1st made it clear the 12th Corps was nearby and the 5th Corps would be arriving shortly. That left three of the enemy corps unaccounted for. Again, largely because of Stuart's absence, Lee had no idea where those other three enemy corps were located or what they were doing. But he could calculate that by dawn on July 2nd, Meade would have had as much as 18 hours' notice of the fighting at Gettysburg, and if the Federal commander was going to make a stand there at the crossroads town, he would certainly have the rest of his army on the march for the place. That meant that if Lee was going to attack with any advantage, that is, his entire army against only a portion of Meade's, then time was a key factor. Lee needed to attack as soon as possible on July 2nd. In a letter written a month after the battle to his mentor, Confederate Senator Louis Wigfall, James Longstreet confirmed that time was a critical factor in Lee's thinking. Longstreet told Wigfall that what transpired at Gettysburg was, quote, do I think to our being under the impression that the enemy had not been able to get all his forces up? Being under this impression, General Lee thought it best to attack at once. Well, Lee may have wished to attack at once on July 2nd, but as we've said, his plans that morning weren't fully formed, since he was still deciding how and where to attack. And that was because on the morning of the 2nd, he still had only an imperfect understanding of the position the Federals had taken up. He obviously thought the Union left was worth a look, and was most likely going to be the best spot to press the attack that day. But until Captain Johnston returned from his reconnaissance and made his report, Robert E. Lee couldn't formulate any precise plans. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In his book, Gettysburg, The Final Fury, Bruce Catton opens the chapter on the battle's second day by writing, quote, On the morning of July 2nd, General Robert E. Lee appeared to be on the crest of a wave. Robert E. Lee hadn't intended to fight at Gettysburg, but once a battle had been started at the crossroads town, Lee wanted to settle it there. The fighting on July 1st had resulted in a partial Confederate victory, and because of that result, Lee had decided by the evening of the 1st that he would renew the offensive the next day. The first day's outcome provided Lee with momentum, and he was determined to exploit that advantage by renewing the attack on the Federals at Gettysburg on July 2nd. As he would put it in one of his official reports, quote, Encouraged by the successful issue of the engagement of the first day, and in view of the valuable results that would ensue from the defeat of the army of General Meade, it was thought advisable to renew the attack. Previous campaigns and battles had taught Lee the importance of maintaining the initiative, so it's natural he would apply that lesson here at Gettysburg and renew the attack. However, we think several other factors also played a part in Lee's decision to renew the attack on the Federals at Gettysburg on July 2nd. Well, mostly it boils down to Lee's supreme confidence in himself and in his army. What happened at Gettysburg over the first three days of July was in some measure a result of that arrogance. That's not to say Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia didn't have reason to be contemptuous of the Yankees. At Fredericksburg the previous December, they had beaten the enemy easily, and just a few months ago at Chancellorsville, they had whipped them again, less easily, but against longer odds. It's no wonder Lee and his men marched into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863, confident in the expectation of winning a third battle, but this time a victory of real consequence, won on northern soil. Back in May, replying to a letter from Hood, Lee wrote that if properly organized and officered, 
He thought the Army of Northern Virginia to be, quote, unquote, invincible, and stated his belief that, quote, there never were such men in an army before. In going north into Pennsylvania, it seems safe to say that Lee felt perfectly confident of being able to wage a successful offensive, even against a numerically superior foe, even operating far from Virginia, even with a tenuous line of communication and supply back south. Because man for man, Lee considered his own forces infinitely superior to those of the Army of the Potomac. As for the soldiers themselves, the mood of the men of the Army of Northern Virginia was upbeat and optimistic when they realized they were to march north and take the war to the Yankees. A soldier in the 12th Virginia wrote home on June 23rd of his certainty that, quote, victory will inevitably attend our arms in any collision with the enemy. British Colonel Fremantle observed during the Confederate Army's march north that at no time during the war had he seen the rebel soldiers, quote, so eager for a fight or so confident of success. The fighting on July 1st had confirmed Lee's belief that the combat skill of the men in his army's ranks remained unmatched, and so in deciding to renew the battle on July 2nd, Lee wouldn't have doubted for a second that the soldiers' proven abilities would be anything other than a perfect match for his aggressive tactics. Robert E. Lee was not only supremely confident in the combat prowess of his soldiers, but he was also supremely confident in his own ability to whip the Yankees there at Gettysburg. Of course, he never came out and said that he fought it out at Gettysburg for three days because he thought he was the best thing to hit a battlefield since Alexander the Great, but Lee's actions and decisions at Gettysburg pretty much say it for him. And again, such confidence wasn't without reason, since, after all, he had whipped every general the Yankees had put in the field against him, from McClellan to Pope to Burnside to Hooker, and there was no reason to think it would be any different now with Meade. In fact, Lee was probably thinking that with Meade having only been in command of the Army of the Potomac for a handful of days, he, that is Meade, would most likely be a bit hesitant and cautious, and that would just increase the odds that Lee would be able to dominate him in a battlefield contest. Now, how much such thinking might have affected Lee's actual decision-making is uncertain, since he never specifically addressed it afterward. But we think Meade's newness to army command would have been not only something Lee was aware of, but he would have seen it as an advantage that he could exploit by aggressively seeking to maintain the initiative at Gettysburg. As y'all will recall, we started this section of the episode with that Bruce Catton quote that on the morning of July 2nd, Robert E. Lee found himself on the crest of a wave, and we just wanted to take some time to explore what probably went into his thinking with regard to how he was going to ride that wave. Lee obviously had no doubt about his general intentions for July 2nd. He meant to push the advantage gained by the partial victory of the 1st, and he would do that by renewing the attack on the Federals. Remember, on the first, he had told Longstreet, 
If the enemy is there tomorrow, we must attack him. Even if some of the specifics remain to be worked out, like the how and where of the attack, Lee was still determined to assault the position the Federals had taken up and in that way maintain the initiative. Experience on previous battlefields had taught him the importance of holding on to the initiative. But now, here at Gettysburg, there was also the time factor. That is, the longer Lee waited to renew the attack, the greater the chances Meade would be able to fully concentrate his forces. The time factor actually had a great deal of uncertainty wrapped up in it, since Lee, because of the absence of Stuart, was still in the dark about the whereabouts of those three missing Federal Corps and what they were doing. But since there was a good chance Meade was hustling them toward Gettysburg, Lee would have known that he needed to attack as soon as possible if he hoped to catch just a portion of the Yankee army with his entire force. Then there was also the supreme confidence Robert E. Lee had in himself and his army. He had come north looking for a showdown battle with the enemy, and although this wasn't necessarily the battle he would have chosen, it was the battle fate had given him, and so he would ride the wave, never doubting that he and his army would emerge victorious. As you guys will recall, we closed out the last show with George Meade saying, We may as well fight it out here just as well as anywhere else. And we were thinking that it's easy for us to imagine that it was that exact same thought, or one very much like it, that lay beneath Robert E. Lee's decision to fight it out at Gettysburg. He had come north looking for a battle, a battle he was certain he and his army would win, and so it might just as well be here as anywhere else. We find it fascinating that neither Robert E. Lee nor George Meade had intended to fight a battle at Gettysburg beginning on July 1st, but each realized that this was the battle fate had given to him, and each commander, in his own way and for his own reasons, came to the same conclusion. Each decided that he might as well fight it out here, at this crossroads town, just as well as anywhere else. That means it's time to start to wrap up this episode. As you might have noticed, we did quite a bit of foreshadowing in this show regarding Captain Johnston's reconnaissance of the Federal left. And if you've read ahead in the story, then you know Johnston's scouting mission and his report to Lee are one of the most controversial aspects of what happened during the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. And we will talk about that but you'll have to wait for the next show. Right. Um, As we bring the curtain down on this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. Carl H., Travis H., and Brian and Laurel. Mark M., Sean D., Dave G., and Carol S. Peter R., Michael L., Daniel B., and Gary E. Mark B., Michael D., John M., and William F. And thanks to C. Miller, Kevin W., Mike K., Larry W., Craig W., and Gregory B. for their donations. 
Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and at the end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. And as we do each year at this time, we'll point out that Spiritwood has some lovely Christmas music that is perfect to have playing in the background as you work on a Civil War podcast or drink eggnog or deck the halls with boughs of holly. Okay, well, and with that, we'll say thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we continue with the story of the Battle of Gettysburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.